Hi, podcasting from New York. They say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. This is Pushing Boundaries. Most of today's commentary on complex social issues is binary, unproductive, and flat-out lazy. With this podcast, I'm looking to hopefully elevate these conversations, and as a lifelong educator, hopefully learn a few things along with you. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of Pushing Boundaries. Again, we're going to touch on Black Man, My Story. I have a new guest today by the name of Professor Tyron Pope. Tyron Pope is a retired law enforcement executive with over 20 years of public service in the New York City Police Department. Presently works with the Legal Aid Society as a criminal defense investigator and an adjunct instructor in sociology department at Concordia College, Bronxville, New York. Teaching criminal justice courses, introduction to criminal justice, criminology, and policing in diverse communities. He he is an educational candidate in executive leadership doctorate program with St. John's Fisher College of Iona College. He has a BS in business administration and an MS in business leadership from Concordia College, Bronxville, New York. Welcome my guest, Professor Tyrone Pope. Who am I? Um, I'm a black man and my name is Tyrone Pope. Um, people call me Ty Pope. Okay, give, us, give us a background and, um, what you've accomplished. A little background about me, you know, I usually start off in my personal statement, I usually start off with a quote and it's basically from um, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's about courage and it's from Harper Lee. And it says, um, if I wanted you to see, you know, what courage really is, instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand, um, it is when you know that you're licked before you begin, but you begin anyway, and you see it through no matter what. And that's a quote from Harper Lee, um, Atticus Finch, to his son Jim, and to Mockingbird. And mm-hmm. I start off with that quote in my personal statement because, you know, I truly believe that, you know, my life was a series of challenges and how I met those challenges and what I learned from those challenges, you know, became the measure of who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my life started off with a challenge and, and with every setback, that I've had in my life, I sought to build on every lesson that I learned. And some lessons that I learned, you know, I tend to glean and um, revel in each victory that I have accomplished and learn from each fall that I have crawled out of. And um, I always say that in the spring of 1970, because I'm a 70s baby, March 13th, 1970, in the spring of 1970, my journey began Mm. as a son of a single mom you know, a grandson of a Southern migrant from um, Georgia, um, North Carolina, you know, a nephew of a community activist, a younger brother to a sister and a cousin to all. And I always say I was raised in a village by many, um, which I call a concrete jungle um, of a once burning Bronx as my background of my childhood, you know? So I was raised in the South Bronx and, um, you know, I was fortunate, you know, to come through an era where, you know, things were transitioning, you know, especially in this world. You know, um, I remember when we had transistor radios and black and white TVs, you know, now when we had, you know, big Betamax VCR tapes and now we have streaming services, you know. So, you know, I'm happy to be raising that generation to see all, you know, and um, I've seen this city change so much and I've seen this country change so much in my, my 50 years. You know, um, and I'm just happy to be here, you know, um, and express who I am and, you know, what I've been through. And like I said, you know, I was raised in the South Bronx. I was educated in the New York City school system up into the ninth grade. Um, You know, then after that, after the ninth grade, you know, that's when I was afforded or I got a scholarship to a private boarding school in a small town called Hudson, Ohio. Yeah, it's um, really, it's on the outskirts of Cleveland, you know, in a suburban village, you know, called Hudson. It's like, it's like right in between Cleveland, Akron, Ohio, like Northeastern Ohio, I call it LeBron's country, you know? Okay. You know, so Western Missouri Academy is uh, where uh, 
I went to high school, went to prep school, and I went from, and I lived two different extremes, you know, because I grew up from the age of, you know, one to let's say 13 and a half to 14, you know, in the South Bronx, but from 14 to 18, those those vital years, those crucial years when you really learn to become a man, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in Northeastern Ohio in a predominantly white neighborhood because mm-hmm. I lived in a boarding school and I had no family out there. So, mm-hmm. you know, I would come home. I lived out there nine months out of the year. I would come home about three months out of the year. And most of the time that was the summer, you know, so like June, August, you know, late August, I was back, back in Ohio, you know, um, you know, it, it took, it took, it took a little bit of sort of kind of like a little bit of bravery, a little bit of heart to leave New York at the 14 in 1984, you know, in the midst of all this, all this crack, that's the beginning of the crack era, you know, the crack wars that was just, that, that just started, you know, it, it took a little bit, you know, courage from my mom, you know, from my family, you know, um, and for myself you know, to, to leave at that time. And I think that sort of like kind of saved me in a way, mm. you know, because a lot of my friends and a lot of my family members and, and a lot of the young men that I grew up with, you know, are not here right now, you know? Mm. You know, and a, a lot of them were victims to that era, you know, whether it was through um, death or incarceration, mm. you know? A lot have been lost in the system, you know, and very few made it through the cracks, you know, and and I say I was lucky to make it through, you know, and, you know, coming from a family that was community involved, you know, even though I left to get an education, to pursue an education, you know, the long-term goal was to always come back, you know. I never wanted to escape the Bronx. I love the South Bronx. You know, I love Harlem. I love Brooklyn. I love Bed-Stuy. I love New York City. I love that dynamic. And my goal was to come back, you know, into, you know, just like, just like any, you know, but just like, just like any, any, any close-knit society, they raise their, they, they raise their kids up. They go out, they learn, and they bring back what they learn to their communities so the communities can flourish instead of, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to reap the benefits of what I can, but I'm not going to go back. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to reach back, you know, to help. I'm just going to keep on and keep on going on. Meanwhile, your people are back there still suffering. You know what? Right. I can go back. We can suffer together. We can make this happen together. You know? So, you know, that's just a little bit of me, a little bit of my story, a little bit of my beginnings, you know, um, and where I'm from, you know, and, uh-huh. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So, you know, just let's go to the next thing. There's a lot of things that are being portrayed in the media, right? You know, and that's why the uh, Black Lives Matter is so important right now. And the, the pushback on, on the images that are out there and mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, black men and uh, people of color want to be like humans, you know. And so, you know, but, but through the stereotypes that have been pushed through media, we're almost like inhuman or savage. So, Let's, let's ask this. I'm going to ask you this next question. What's not true about you based on the, not, the stereotypes that are out there? What's not true about me? Uh, that I'm not your average police. I wasn't your average law enforcement officer. Let's put it that way. You know, um, wasn't the stereotypical type of law enforcement officer. Wasn't that image. Wasn't really hardcore like that. Um, always, I was sort of outside of the box, outside of the norm. You know, and I was fine with that. You know, um, I'm not a follower. You know, always been a leader. You know, and I think I was born to lead. You know, um, when people see law enforcement officers and they see the images of, of them and what they portrayed, you know, most black African-American officers are looked at as traitors (laughs) within their community, you know, because of the climate that they they are. You know, I had, I I even had family members tell me, you know, 
you're the only one that I mess with. You know, <laughs> they didn't say it like in those terms. You're the one that I mess with. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, then, then you have, you know, the majority, you know, the occupying army that's on that job, you know, looking at you like, why are you here? Mm. You know, and, you know, my, me joining the police department, you know, it was kind of, you know, a, a weird route, you know, a funny route, because I came back to New York, you know, with the vision, you know, of going to, and I went to NYU. That's where I started off at. I started off at New York University in 1988, summer of 88, started off at NYU, you know. Um, started off in the Stern School of Business, but said business is not my thing, <laughs> you know. I was basically scared. I was basically scared of economics, you know, and I had a couple of, <laughs> couple of, um, you know, eye-opening, you know, <laughs> you know, episodes, you know, in the school. And I said to myself, you know what, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. This is not my thing, you know. So uh, I enrolled in the College of Arts and Sciences, you know, and I was looking for a major and that I thought English was going to be my major, but I ended up majoring in metropolitan studies. You know, my goal was to be uh, a lawyer and um, I wanted to work in the public sector and around urban, urban planning, you know, I'm developing communities and, um, you know, not just building them, designing them from, you know, from a physical perspective, you know, concrete and, and bricks, brick and mortar, from a humanistic perspective, you know, um, building communities, developing communities with, with our people in mind, you know, that was my goal. Um, one night, I tell the story, um, one night, you know, when I was out with my friend, you know, and we were invited to a party up at Manhattanville College, you know, Manhattan College, you know, up at the top of Manhattan, on top of the Bronx on 241st Street, uh, Van Cortland Park, that station, Manhattan College, the green and white, you know? So, you know, we go to a party up there, you know, me and my friends, you know, and um, we were invited, you know, by the student union, you know? So it was a bunch of young, you know, people of color, young black males, you know, Latino males, you know, we all hanging out, we all go up, you know, we were invited by a friend of ours who was on a wrestling team, you know, at Manhattan College and, um, you know, we had a good time, you know, you know, Manhattan College is like what, a Jesuit, a Catholic type university or college or whatever like that. So they had priests and stuff there and whatnot. You know, they welcomed us and um, the students welcomed us. You know, it was mostly, you know, white students, you know, we got to intermingle and, you know, you know, get to know each other and had a good time, you know. Um, when the party was over and the event was over and we were, you know, ushered out, you know, as we walk into the gate, you know, to go to the 241st Street train station, you know, um, to go home, you know, from college, we're met by a white police lieutenant and uh, a squad of rookie officers. Mm. And as soon as this, and, and as soon as this, you know, white lieutenant saw us hit that front gate, you know, of the um, college, he immediately said, get he immediately got out of his car with his white shirt, tall, big guy, bullhorn, and said, get the fuck out of my neighborhood. Wow. And you're, and you're not moving fast. Wow. You know? So we were like, we were like stunned because we were like, you know, we were invited here, you know? You know, we were invited here, you know? So we looked back and, you know, in awe because, you know, you see the priest there and you see you know, the administration there, and they see this man, you know, get in a bullhorn and bully us out of, you know, this, uh, out of the university and, usher, and to usher us, you know, to the train station and, um, as, as quick as possible. But I guess we weren't moving fast enough for him. Mm. So, so he proceeded to swing his club, you wow. know, and, um, you know, at that time, I think the Ghetto Boys were out. They was there was a song. My mind's playing tricks on me. Remember that song? I remember that. I remember my mind's that. playing tricks on me. So one of my boys decided he he started singing the song or whatnot because this happened like in October 
of that year. So my, my boy starts singing the song. This week, Halloween fell on the weekend. Me and ghetto boys a trick or treat. And you know what I'm saying? So, you know, and, and, and then he said, and then he said, and then he said the line, my mind's playing tricks on me. And the white lieutenant lost, totally lost it. You know, there was a young Hispanic cop there who was like, please, 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 like, like begging us, you know, and there's nothing he could really do, you know, because he had just gotten a job. There was nothing he could really do, but he was like our age, you know, because mm-hmm. wow, he was very young on the job. And he was like, please, guys, please, you know, hurry up this guy, you know, is like, whoop, you know, my, is losing it, you know. So he comes out, he starts swinging, he grabs up my friend. Throws him in the car. Tell us to get the fuck out of the neighborhood and to not show up at the precinct, you know, else we're going to get it too. Mm. But guess what? He didn't know what kind of young men we were, you know. He didn't know, you know, where our hearts lie, you know. He didn't know what we were going to become or who we or, or who we really are. We mm. showed up to the precinct anyway. Mm. We showed up. And <laughs> when we showed up to the precinct, you know, the same young Latino officer that told us to please, you know, don't ruffle him up, don't get his, comes out, <laughs> runs back to the sides and says, Lou, meaning the lieutenant, they're standing outside, <laughs> you know? So it was about, let's say, it was 10 of us, but one of us got arrested, remember, got locked up. So the, so the nine of us, the remaining nine of us, you know, all young black men from the Bronx, you know, who went to NYU, Hunter, you know, and Lehman, because we all connected. That's how our, our friendships were. Some of my best friends to this day. Mm. We stood right in front of the entrance of the of 50, 50th precinct, the 50 precinct on two, 231st, you know, in Broadway. Wow. Right in McDonald's parking lot, right across the street in McDonald's parking lot, if you're familiar with that. And we sat there until they let our boy out. Wow. You know, and we, we, we refused to move, you know, and we weren't going home, you know, and we stood there to sunbreak, you know, um, they locked them up about midnight that night. We stood there, you know, until six, six thirty that morning. Waiting, you know, waiting, you know, so, you know, that's where our hearts were at. And I tell that story because it's sort of like a catalyst to what drove me into the police department because I went back to school that the next, the next week or so, and, you know, and, um, you know, I told a story to a gentleman that I worked with, that I actually worked for, you know, and, um, the library at, at NYU. And, you know, this that incident probably happened around my junior year, my senior year, the beginning of my senior year, that incident had probably happened around that, around that time. So <clears throat> it was a little bit further on because I entered NYU in 88. I said that incident probably happened because that ghetto boy probably came out in like 89, maybe 90, you know? So, I'm working for an old older Irishman, right? And at that time, my mom, my mom actually worked for the police department. My mother and my sister actually worked for the police department. They were police administrative aides, you wow. know. And one thing about my mom, you know, when I was in boarding school and I would come home every summer, the first thing my mother would do was say, "You gotta go look, job, and here's the chief. Look at it, because every Wednesday it comes out and it has job listings. You know what?" Find yourself a summer job, but you know what you're going to do? You're going to prepare yourself for the future. And you're going to take a all test, the service job. all those tests, all those civil service jobs. So right. he said, I don't care. Whatever you do this summer, when you're, when you're back here in New York, you, you're going to find yourself a, a job for the summer, and you're going to take at least one or two of these tests that they're going to be given during the summer. And I bless my mom for doing that. You know, she put that, she put that fire under me, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, I took a bunch, every time I came home, I took a police test, I took the fireman's test, took sanitation tests, you know, um, I took uh, 
postal. You what know, was, I, I mean, you know, you were you were in you were in college during this time, right? So, yep. What was the uh, the, the yeah, that, I took those tests when I was in high school. Oh, you know? okay, okay. But, okay. But I, I was I was getting called, right? For all those tests back years the years later after take after taking all those tests since I was like 15 and a half, 16 or whatever. By the time I got by the time I got into college, all those tests started coming up. The numbers, you know, they start calling my list my list numbers. So I was turning the police department down. I turned the police department down like three or four times. Wow. You know, because I was on like three or four lists. And the last in the last list, the last test, they were like, listen, are you gonna take it or not? And that was like in between my junior and senior year. And you know, and that's when that incident happened between my junior and senior year. And, you know, I told, you know, the older man that I worked for in my work study program at NYU in the library that, you know, you know, what happened. And I told him I was getting offered for, for, for the job. And he was like, you know, you can always come back here. You know, he's, he was like, you complain about them so much. And, you know, you always have something to say. He said, how about if you, you know, take the job and do something about it? Mm. You know, basically, if you can't beat them, you know, join them. But when you join them, make a difference, mm. you know, and you're not going to be able to win every battle, you know, but you can win, you know, some of those that you do, you might win, you do win, you know, you can you can make a difference. So, you know, NYU, things got expensive. Cuomo started cutting scholarships. My academic scholarship got cut in half. This became my option. I weighed my options out. I took the job, you know. And from, from that point on, you, you know, through. I came through. You know, so, you know, and when I took the job, it was, it was a struggle, you know, it was a struggle. It was, it was, it was like living in two worlds, literally. Mm -hmm. It was like living in two worlds, you know, and, you know, a lot of people who don't understand, a lot of people who are non-law enforcement, you know, really don't understand that, you know, for, you know, a, a, a lot of whites that came on a job, a lot of Caucasians that came on a job, you know, for them, it was a career, you know, you know. For us, it was work. It was a job, you know, because they came to tra tra from traditions, you know, you know, from family, from histories of them being on the job. You know, mm -hmm. for many of us that came on, we didn't have that, you know, and um, you know, you coming into a place where you know, you know, you feel where it's already hostile against you, and you feel unwanted, and you feel like you're displaced, like you're not there, you know. So, I'm sorry. So with that being said, I said, you know, for most of my life, you know, I we've been trained, at least I've been trained, you know, you know, to make white people feel comfortable, you know, and how to take the bass out of my mouth, you know, mm. you know, out of my voice, you know, how to smile constantly, you know, how to minimize my physical space, you know, how to craft my words without being unthreatening, you know, and this training was never, you know, explicit it was always implicit you know and that's that's what i wrote on my post the other day the one that you read you know and i said you know it's a subtle system you know of reward and punishment that enabled me as a person you know to strive in my you know scholastic and my professional you know careers success you know mm -hmm. to learn how to live between these two worlds mm -hmm. you know and in fact you know, it was one of the most enduring lessons that my grandparents, you know, taught me, you know, and how to successfully move, you know, within the system and navigate within the system, how to succeed, you know, in a white world by minimizing, you know, my blackness, hmm. um, by being non-threatening, by being friendly, hmm. by being jovial, by being a quote unquote not being an angry black man because you didn't because you walked in the office and didn't say good morning mm. or something like that, you know, you know, and all the while while you were navigating the system, you're thinking that it's gonna pay off for you. But that path to success 
it was half-hearted. You know, it really didn't pay off like like you like you would think it would. You know, we don't live in Disney World. We live in the real world. You mm-hmm. know, and um, this is ever present. You know, with these consequences, and um, me being deemed a threat. You know, especially when I took these lessons to the NYPD. When you retired, what, what did you retire at the rank of? I mean, after how many years? How many after, years was your rank? After, after years on the job, I retired at the rank of supervisor detective squad, which is the highest ranking sergeant, you know, on, on, on the NYPD. I was the rank of sergeant, but I was a supervisor detective squad. That's sort of like if you had to equate it to the Army, it would be like a command sergeant major, you know, um, basically – you know, I had the rank of I had the, had the rank of a sergeant, but the power of a lieutenant. Okay. You know, so basically, you know, I I could run a precinct command myself. Um, being a precinct detective squad, you know, I could run a group of detectives. You know, and 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 that's basically what I was. I was in charge of an investigative unit. You know, in the NYPD, um, particularly a narcotics unit. You know. I ran a tactical narcotics team, which was a, a shooting team, a homicide team. And we responded to every high profile shooting, stabbing, home invasion, robbery, um, anything that was that would make the news would be newsworthy from um, 59th Street to the top of Manhattan, river to river. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that, that's what I was. I was in Manhattan, North Narcotics. You know. So, so you want to you want to go into just uh, like read your story and just get us into that post because that we really want to use that as a jump and springboard into more conversations. All right. So, like I said before, I took these lessons with me to the NYPD. You know where I thought that navigating the system would allow me to have an impact to serve my my community. Mm-hmm. Um, to don't be too threatening, and then they accept you and listen to you. You know, um, you get to swallow ter- swallow the momentary dig- indignities you know, for the greater good, for the long-term success. So I put my life on the line and I went to Brooklyn North Narcotics as an undercover in my early career with the NYPD. And I was undercover in some of the most dangerous precincts or dangerous neighborhoods in our country, um, which at that time was considered a kill zone, literally. Um, Central Brooklyn. Um, Talk about precincts like the 79th Precinct, the 81st Precinct, the 77th precinct, the 73rd precinct, the 75th precinct, and the 83rd precincts. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked in major case units, tactical response teams, shooting teams, and I even spent a brief time in internal affairs. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my counterpart, my counterparts, you know, on the job, you know, they would have team outings and events, which I was never made a part of, even though I had just risked my life so they could put food on their tables, build pools in their backyards, and put their kids through school. I tell a story about one night after I was promoted to the rank of detective, detective third grade. That's the lowest level to investigating detective um, in the NYPD. You know, I was driving home one night, and I was car stopped a few feet away from my home at that time, which, was, which I lived in the 42nd Precinct in the Bronx, New York. Um, I was stopped by two rookie cops who thought I fit a description of a person who had just committed a crime or a shooting, you know, around the corner from where I, I lived. At that time, I drove a black expedition, you know, um, those were the new, you know, trucks out there at the time, you know, 98, 97, 98, you know, expeditions, they were hot, you know, big, big gas guzzlers, SUVs. So they drug me out of my car that night while people in the neighborhood, you know, screamed, you know, he's a cop, he's a cop, because they stopped me right on the corner of 165th Street and Trinity Avenue. I was only a few feet away from my home. I was right there at the intersection. That's where they stopped me. You know, the people from my neighborhood, they knew me because they knew my truck, you know, and they knew who I was. They knew what they knew what I did, you know. These are people I grew up with, you know. So you know, it it was still it was about nine, maybe nine thirty in summer night when I, when they stopped me like that, and people were still out because you know Forest Projects is right there, Trinity Avenue, you know Morris High Morris High School's up the block, you know, so most of the people were out. It was a it was a gorgeous night, 
And when they stopped me, even the people from my community were like, yo, you're stopping a cop, you know? He, he's, he's with you, you know? But these young rookies, they caught tunnel vision. And even though, you know, I let them know that I was a police officer, you know, and I even spoke to them in police terms and police jargon, you know, that only cops would know, you know, the way I spoke, you know, I spoke in cold words that every cop would know, you know, I gave, you know, like calling signs and I told them my, my shield number, my tax number. I even gave them the numerical number of my command, which only a New York City police officer would know, you know, the numerical code of the command, you know, like, you like in Manhattan North, not like in the precincts, usually the command code would be, you know, the 42nd precinct. So you'll know that. So the command code would be zero two. But in a special unit, like the unit that I worked in, the command code was a little bit different. It was a whole different number. You know, sometimes it was like 845 or 852, you know, and only a cop would know that, you know. So, you know, I even gave them that, you know, I even mentioned the names of officers that I knew that worked in their precinct that I'd graduated with from the police academy. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I tried to do everything to make myself, you know, to make them comfortable and to make, you know, myself familiar so, you know, it wouldn't raise to another level. But they still didn't see that, you know. All they saw was a young black man in a nice fancy car a truck that was with, that had rims, mm. you know, that was lightly tinted and the tent wasn't even, the tent was factory tent. It wasn't even dark, you know, and, you know, who dressed nice and that was it. They didn't see anything else, you know, but, you know, I had to watch myself because, you know, they still felt I was a threat. So they drew their weapons down on me. They pulled me out of my truck, forced me to the ground. And then when they forced me to the ground, that's when my shield popped out because um, I hung my shield around. When they forced me to the ground, that's when my shield popped out of, you know, of, from, my, from my shirt, you know, from my neck, it popped out because I wore it on a string. And when they saw my shield, that's when they got scared and they asked for my ID. And the cop force went and they had me on the ground. He went in my back pocket, rumbled through my I rumbled through my wallet. Then he saw my police ID, which read detective. And that's when he told me, get the fuck up and go the fuck home. And I said, I am home. Mm. And then he said, Well, get in your fucking house. Mm. And this was coming from two younger officers that were on the, that, the job that time. Now at that time, you know, this happened in what, 98, 98, you know, I was already on the job almost seven years mm. by that time. You know, I had, I had rank, I was already a rank, I was already at the rank of detective. I, already, I had time in rank mm. detective because I got promoted with, at the, to detective with three years on the job, mm. you know, so, you know, I was very young. And we can assume, we can assume that these are white officers. Yes, they were two white, two young white officers. Mm. You know, now these two cops, they were rookies at the time, you know, and they had less time on the job than I had. Mm. You know, they had tunnel vision and they didn't see anything but the color of my skin. So, you know, <clears throat> me feeling the way I felt, you know, mostly distraught and traumatized. And I, and I can tell you, yo, I'm a sensitive guy. You know, I take things to heart and I cried. I had tears, you know, and I felt wronged. So immediately I, I went to their precinct. I drove. I didn't even drive. I didn't even park the car, go home, you know, knock on the door, tell my family what was going on. No, I drove directly to the precinct. And when I got to the precinct, I asked to speak to the desk officer, you know. And he was an older white lieutenant, you know, and with gray hair, I asked him for, you know, I asked him, you know, you know, I told him about the situation that was going on, that what happened. 
and I told him that, you know, all I wanted was an apology, you know? And at that time, he looked dumbstruck, you know, like befuddled, like, oh shit, like, you know, I got this guy here standing in front of me, he's a detective, this just happened to me, now I have to get the ball in motion. Now I have to do my job. Right. And he failed, he failed me that, that night because he didn't do his job. Mm. You know, be, be, that being said, he was supposed to make a phone call to his commanding officer. He was supposed to make a phone call to internal affairs, you know, um, or inspection or inspections unit or, or, or something to try to get this situation right and right this situation and right this wrong. But instead, I was met by, you know, a black police officer who was the TS operator, the telephone dispatch operator. He's like the first person that sits beside the desk officer when you come into command. And the clerical person that was there, the police administrative aide, they were both black. You know, they didn't have any rank or anything like that in the job, but they were both there. And what they tried to do was try to usher me out of the precinct to tell me, like, listen, listen, brother, don't do this. It's not the time, you know, um, you know, you know, come back again with your grievances or whatever like that. But they didn't understand the hurt that I was feeling, you know? And I was like, no, you know, I can't let this go, you know, undone. So that's when, you know, someone within the command must've called these two cops back to the station house because the two cops come rushing into the station house and I'm standing there in front of the desk where the lieutenant is above me, perched above me. And they yell to me in front of the lieutenant, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of my house. Meaning, when he say my house, meaning the precinct. These are the two cops that had just stopped me in front of my home, you know, pulled me up, you know, and made me feel and, and almost and, and it could have went a whole different way where I could have had my life taken away from me. You know, these are the same two cops came into the precinct in front of their superior, you wow. know, who's, who's supposed to take control of the situation, told me to get the fuck out of the precinct. And if I don't, I'm going to be in a jail cell, you know, and this is me saying, now, listen, I'm a New York City police detective. What are you talking about? You know, and if you want to go on rank, yeah, I, I sort of outrank you, you know, you know, but it, that didn't matter. You know, being a black man, that did not matter, you know. So, mm. you know, wow. I looked up at the lieutenant in the desk. I looked him in his face, looked him in the eye, and I, and I said to him, are you going to condone this? You know, are you going to condone behavior? You know, and why would you let these two officers, you know, talk to me and threaten me the way they did with no respect or no regard and that I was a member of the department and most of all, you know, I'm a human being, you know, and if they treated me that way, imagine how they treated, you know, the people of our community, hmm. the community I lived in, mm -hmm. you know, imagine how they treated them. If they could treat me that way, imagine how especially after I went into the precinct and I was known to the precinct as a detective, you know, if they could treat me that way inside the precinct station house, imagine how they treated the people that they patrolled in the communities where they worked at, mm. you know, mm. and that being said, wow. you know, at that moment, I wanted to quit. I had seven years on the job, but you know, I wanted to quit. At that moment, I wanted to quit. I wanted to give up. At that moment, I was like, you know what? This job is for the birds. You know, fuck this. <laughs> That's what I said, you know? And, you know, this is just one, you know, out of the many stories that, you know, I have experienced during the course of my career, you know, in law enforcement. And what really hurts me the most is that, you know, I dedicated my life to public service and I don't know how to get that mode, that public service mode, you know, out of me, you know, I don't know how to unlearn that, you know, what I've been, what I was raised to learn, you know, what I was taught decades, you know, to be, to be of service to others, you know, like I said, 
You know, my aunt was community activist. You know, my grand my grandmother. You know, they were pillars of you know the community. They were matriarchs of the community. You know, you know, we we were raised right there on Trinity Avenue in the Bronx. You know, in the forty second, forty first, and fortieth precincts. You know, my aunt ran a block association. You know that basically catered. You know to the community, Trinity Avenue Block Association, you know? And um, I said to myself, you know what? I'm not the only one that this probably happened to, you know? And I said to myself, you know what? This is when, you know, I have to do something. So, you know, the purpose of me telling this story, you know, is to, you know, kind of let our younger people know that's coming up that want to become a part of this organization, you know, or just have this knowledge inside them so they can know or hear lessons learned, you know, that I felt this system would never accept me or accept you for who you are, you know that it's not built for you, you know, and most of my friends and colleagues that were on that job were some of them, you know, women with the friends nor colleagues in the, in the end, you know, and they might want to be your friend, you know, but we live in a society, you know, in a racist society where, you know what, people don't want to come outside their norms. And unless we actively work against the system, then the system we serve, whether we realize it or not, is not going to work, you know? So, and I say that the same goes for those who are around you. And that being said, you know, the people that were there that wanted to usher me out, I said, you know, all skin folk ain't your kin folk. That's what my, my cousin used to tell me, you know, when when the cop who was there on the TS used to work with my cousin in corrections. Mm. And when my cousins found out, my cousin found out, he was like, how dare he do that? You know, let them treat me the way they treated me with, with there. So that being said, you know, I I dedicated myself to take in the promotional exams, to try to move up, to try to fight the little battles, the little wars within, to try to influence some policy or whatever I can when I was on the NYPD. And, you know, I'm still trying to undo that training today, but it's difficult. And the reason I posted what I posted the other day is because I said, you know, I can play the game no more and I'm just tired of being tired. Hmm. And that's just one story out of many that I have in me, mm. that's it. And the, and the bad thing about, you know, one of the, where the NYPD fails its members is when their members retire, you know, they, they don't have an exit interview, you know, they don't have a post service analysis to try to figure out you know, to to right to right the wrongs, you know, to see where their strengths lie, where their weaknesses lie, you know, where their threats and opportunities hail, you know. All you do when you retire from the NYPD is you go in, you fill the checklist form, you hand in your helmet, you take your shield, put it on the pillow, take a picture of it, throw it in the bin, and they tell you have a nice life. Wow. But yet no one sits down and no, you don't sit down with anyone and talk it out before you leave. You know, they don't ask you, you know, you know, things about your career, you know, um, what you experienced, you know, how you can better serve the community. And that's why the mind frame that they have now will never change because it's embedded culture. Mm. Mm. It's embedded. Mm. It's embedded in them, you know. So you see behind me, I have this flag, 
you know, I had a gentleman, you know, in the NYPD who, um, you know, used to work, used to work for me, used to work for one of my squads, one of my detectives. He makes custom flags and I had him, you know, he wanted to make me a flag. And I told him, I said, listen, you know, he wanted to make me a flag with the NYPD colors. I said, listen, you know what? Make it with the red, black, and green. Yeah, I see yeah. that. Red, black, and green. <laughs> press there, you know, and you got yeah. what she Mer- merged, yeah, merged into, you know, and what I, you yeah, call it. And you know? I see, like, uh, the stripes there. Yeah, merging to the stripes. And, you know, the... Uh, oh, okay, you got, you, got the, you got the flag, you got the, the, the American flag. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. yeah. So, but the flag is black and white stripes with a blue line across, you know, on a black canvas with those stars, you know. And um, those are the shields that I, I, I um, had my different ranks I helped when I was on the job. When I first came on the job, it's my first shield I ever had, you know, with the housing police department. And then when we merged with the NYPD and then my detective shield is there, and then my, the rank of my sergeant shield is there. So I'm, glad, I'm so. glad you shared this story because I, th- I don't think a lot of people understand the dichotomy that, that plays on, on black men inside of the police department, you know. Yeah. You feel like feel like Bruce Banner, right. <laughs> you know? right. like you're the Hulk or something. It's like you live in the two different lives, you know. Right. Every time I walked out the door, it's like, doo, 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 doo. remember that music? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> that sad music that from from the Hulk, the series. Right. You know, right. a lot of you guys ain't gonna realize remember that, but you know, they used to have this, they used to have this like that piano riff. You know, it was an original, it was an original credit, incredible, original, yeah, original, yeah, um, original credible hope that was on television. Yeah, um, on television, not, CBS. Not, not the cartoon, the real one. Yeah, not the cartoon, but the real, right. little music. Check that out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that little sad music, whatnot. What, 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 that was my theme music. What's your, right? what's, your, what's your advice being that you were on the inside of it and you understood that you couldn't even save yourself from it. What's your advice for black men who are coming into contact with, with police officers to protect themselves when they're interacting with them? Um, basically, you know, always carry ID, you know. Um, you know, try to de-escalate the situation as much as you can. You know, um, try to, to make any furtive movements. You know, go on their command, you know, because remember, you're trying to survive the encounter. You do have a family to go home to, you know. And you don't know where their mind is at, but you don't know where their day went. You got to also remember that a lot of these cops are human, you know, so they do have other troubles that are outside the job. And a lot of them bring their troubles with them to work. Mm. So um, I, I, I say that, you know, throughout my career, I noticed that, especially being um, a sergeant and being on the front line and being a manager of people person, you know, of, 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 of people, you know, um, everyone is different. You know, everyone has, um, you know, different experiences. You know, everyone has different problems. Um, you know, you have to know how to navigate those problems. Um, you know, they can be financial, they can be domestic, they can be, you know, whatever. You never know what's on another man's mind. They're human. You know, um, what the NYPD has to, has, to, has to start doing and dealing with is how, how to, you know, whoa, how to... That was um, <laughs> my towel. <laughs> yeah, um, they have to learn how to how to know how to um, you know, have a openness with their with their officers to you know figure out ways to how they can um you know, um, basically, you know, talk out, you know, their problems, whatever's going on in their lives. You're, you're you know? talking. You're talking like. So that, 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 I mean, in, the, in terms of PD, that might seem like soft talk, you know, talking about restorative circles and having police, you know, share out their feelings and, you know, how are you feeling and, and, and temperature checks. But just saying that that's, that's something that's needed internally. Wow. Well, and where are they getting it from? They're not getting it there. Because they're human beings, you know? And um, being, being a police officer is like, so like a Swiss army knife, you know? You, you 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 have different roles at different times hmm. you know and you all and you see things that others do not see and you have to be able to adapt on the fly and with a lot of people it's hard to do that 
It's hard. We're all humans, you know. And we're gonna take we're gonna take our our experiences in different ways, you know. Like, I was on the shooting team, so every so often I would go to homicide scenes. A lot of people aren't able to deal with, excuse me, <clears throat> seeing dead bodies. Mm. And after you see them for 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 time after time after time after time, you know, you don't think that might get to you a little bit, you know, or, or you're dealing with people with emotional issues and you're trying to diffuse situations and yet, you know, but in the back of your mind, you have your own situation you have to deal with, you know? You know, things are, times are, you know, things are kind of hard, man, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, that being said, and then, you know, NYPD, you know, I mean, they have entry, entry level psych, psychological exam, which is sort of a joke, you know? <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but it's sort of, is it, everything needs to be updated, you know? Mm. You know, I, I've been removed now. I retired in 2012, so it's 2020. So it's been eight years now since I've been removed from the NYPD, you know, meaning, you know, away from the NYPD. You know, I, I served my time and, you know, I moved on, you know, but um, it's still there, it's still a part of me, whether, you know, you like it or not, mm. you know. Todd, thank you, man. Thank you for sharing today. Um, I think we got a lot of information today and a lot, you know, you shared a lot and I think people can connect and you also gave some insight from being on the inside as a black man. You know, living a dual life, so that that was very helpful. And also, you 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 even toward the end of this interview, you raised some concerns in terms of some restorative approaches that need to happen within the NYPD to restore people, right? Because if they're going through trauma on a regular basis and having to deal with trauma inside and outside, how do you restore people at the end of the day so that they can become um, solid, solid or, or, or mentally healthy mentally after the, after the and, and and that's why you have seen recently. Throughout the the last the last half, last couple of years, I say the last five years or so, you see a lot of police suicides. Mm. You've seen a lot of that. They just had one just recently, like about two weeks ago. A young lady, you know, from the Bronx, who was a police officer, took her life. You know, I mean, you know, you, you see this. You know, you got to understand these cops are human too, also. You know, and they have to learn to work within themselves. You know. It's a hard job. Thanks for listening to Pushing Boundaries. Once again, my name is Sharif Rucker. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor by commenting, subscribing, and sharing this podcast with everyone you know. All of these things are free and take very little effort, but would mean the world to me. Thanks again and stay tuned.